Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5. Last week, as we were looking at Ephesians 5, Paul reminded us that there is a difference uh, between how a Christian and how an unbeliever behaves. And Paul reminded us that, that all these things he commands us to put off, everything we've been reading from verse 25 of chapter 4 down to verse 4 of chapter 5, all those behaviors that we're to put off, those are the things that are bringing God's wrath on unbelievers. Therefore, we need to stop joining unbelievers in doing them. Verse 7, be not the therefore partakers with them. We need to stop participating in those things. Now, That should be an obvious truth to us. This should not be something that should be new news. But the danger is that we would be foolish in our response to this reminder instead of being wise. There is a real danger that we could dabble in these things or even embrace them, wasting precious opportunities to please the Lord by instead doing things that God hates. And so before Paul gets into the next area of worthy Christian life, He's going to take some time to urge us to be wise instead of being foolish. So chapter 5, we're going to start reading in verse 5, but we're going to pick up our study in verse 8. Paul says in verse 5, For this you know, that no whoremonger nor unclean person nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no man deceive you with vain words. For because of these things comes the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Be not you therefore partakers with them. For you were sometimes darkness, but now are you light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. This word for here, it's why we need to stop partnering with unbelievers in doing these things. Why? For or because you were sometimes darkness, but now you're not. You were sometimes, the word there sometimes means at some point in the past. If you're a believer today, if you're a Christian, if you're in Christ, at some point before you were in Christ, you were darkness. The word were here, it means to possess certain characteristics. You possessed the characteristics of darkness. And what are the characteristics of darkness? Well, darkness here is a very strong word that describes a deep hole that is so utterly dark the light can't be seen. The light's out there, but you're so deep in it you can't see it. So all these behaviors, all these things that Paul's been telling us to put off, he goes, you were sometimes in that hole. One point in your life, all of us before we were in Christ were in that hole. The light was out there, but we couldn't see it, and so this is how we lived. And this verb here, were, is emphatic, which conveys the idea that Paul is about to describe not who you are now, so Paul is about to describe who we are not now, and therefore, we should not lapse into becoming it again in the future. This is who you were. So all of us were at one point, but it's not who you are now. So don't lapse back into it. Don't lapse into becoming darkness again in the future. Before we were in Christ, the light was out there, but our stubborn refusal to respond to God's Spirit put us in a hole dominated by this self-life mindset. But all of that changed the moment we became in Christ. We were new creations. And so Paul says, but now are you light in the Lord. 
It's the exact opposite of darkness. Now, you possess new characteristics, new traits. This is so interesting because Paul's not saying that all of a sudden we became exposed to light. He didn't say all of a sudden we became enlightened. He says, in Christ, you've become something different. You've become light. You were darkness, but now you've become light. You've been transformed into the exact opposite of what you used to be. And since that's the case, he says, walk as children of light. The word here, walk, is a a present imperative, which means continually order your conduct, continually order your behavior as a child of light. Instead of partnering with those who are still in darkness, we need to behave like who we are now, sons of the light. Now, what does it mean to be a son of the light? Well, it means to be a child of God. 1 John 1.5, God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all, right? God is light. John chapter 1 verse 4, referring to Jesus, in Him was life, and that life was the light of men. John 8.12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He that follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. And he says it again in John 9, 5. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Now, Jesus isn't in the world anymore. I mean, he's in it. Obviously, he's God. But the point is, is he finished his ministry. And now he says this to us. We read it in our scripture reading, Matthew 5, 14. You are the light of the world. We have become something different. We are now children of God. We are children of light. God who is light, in Him is no darkness at all. Jesus, He says, I'm the light of the world, and if someone follows me, they don't walk in darkness anymore. Now they walk in light. That's who we are. So continually order your behavior and conduct as a child of God. Us being light is not just an idea or a pretty metaphor. It speaks about how our radically different conduct It's not just for us, but it impacts those around us. We are the light of the world, which is what Paul says next. He says in verse 9, which is kind of an aside, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Now, your Bible translation might say, for the fruit of the light is in all goodness and righteousness and truth. In fact, if you have anything other than a King James or New King James, it probably says fruit of the light. That is because some very early church leaders quoted this verse with the word light instead of the word spirit. In fact, some of the oldest manuscripts say light instead of spirit. Now, which one is it? Well, since we just covered that God is light, and since the Holy Spirit is God, it doesn't matter because both words communicate the same exact thing, which is probably why it ended up getting quoted both ways. The fruit of the Spirit is the fruit of the light. They're the same thing. And so the fruit of the light The fruit of being a child of God, the fruit of God is in or consists of all goodness and righteousness and truth. An apple tree is not going to produce bananas no matter how hard you try. Can't. Sown wheat is not going to produce watermelon to bring to urban surf. Just won't happen. When we are transformed into light, the byproduct is going to be God's character. God's character is in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Goodness. We just sang about it, right? Like we just sang about how good God is. 
Some of you like music, some of you don't like music. Some of you like to sing, some of you don't like to sing. Whether you like to sing or you don't like to sing, whether it's easy to catch the tune and to feel the beat and it kind of energizes you and you enjoy that or you don't, our worship is not just about, ooh, I like music. Our mind is supposed to be engaged. And when we talk about God being good, the very thought is everything that we're describing here. What is goodness? What is it fact that God is always good? Well, that He is in all goodness is that which is morally good and that which is useful. It's the opposite of the uncleanness and the filthiness and the foolish talking Paul mentioned in verses 3 and 4 that are no good. They're useless. They're worthless. It's the purity. It's the verbalizing of thanks that Paul says we need to put on. God is pure. He is holy. He is good. God is righteous. And so the fruit of being his child is going to be righteousness. Righteousness is what God requires and how we relate to others. This is the dealing with our anger correctly that Paul talked about. It's about having that good work ethic. It's about proper communication. It's about right attitudes of the heart towards others that we're supposed to put on. That's the byproduct of being a child of light. It's who we are. It's how we should live. Fruit of the light is also truth, it says, reality, that which is real. This is the honesty Paul said we need to put on. This is the honesty we learned from Jesus the truth that's in him. Being transformed into light results in all the conduct that we've been learning that we need to put on. And so what Paul is saying here is, you need to walk as children of light because that's, that's what this looks like. We need to decide to behave like who we are. We need to buy in, opt in to the idea that there's no good reason to behave any other way. If you're in Christ, you need to buy into that. That's what verse 10 says, proving what is acceptable unto the Lord. Sentence-wise, this follows the command to walk as children of light. Walk as children of light, and you do that by proving what is acceptable to the Lord. The word proving here, it means to approve of something because you've tested it and found it to be acceptable. You need to walk as a child of light approving of what God says because you have bought into it. You have believed that pleasing God is the most important thing. That's what you have to do. If you are light and you're going to walk as a child of light, you've got to buy in to the fact that pleasing God is what matters and that what God says is the most important thing. If you don't, you're going to struggle. If your approach to God's commands is, well, God says I have to do this, You're going to struggle to live a life that matches who God created to be. You're going to lapse into darkness. I remember there was an individual many years ago in the ministry that would come to me and and they had struggles because their coworkers would invite them to go to things and places they knew they shouldn't be at. And this this individual would tell me and say, they won't leave me alone. I keep telling them no and they keep inviting me. I said, well, what do you tell them when they invite you? And I tell them I'm a Christian. I'm not allowed to do that stuff. I said, well, try this next time. Next time they ask you, say, listen, thanks for the invite. I said, but I love Jesus more than I love you guys, and I don't want to break his heart. They'll stop. Because anyone can come up with a code of conduct that someone can persuade you to violate. Anyone can have a code of conduct. There's nothing unique about you going, I'm a Christian, I'm not allowed to do that. 
Because there's all sorts of other people out there who say, well, I'm a vegan, or I'm a this, or I'm a that, and I don't do this. Anyone can say, well, I'm a this, and this is my code of conduct. But we're Christians. We're not Christians because we have a code of conduct. We're Christians because we love Jesus. And we don't want to break His heart. We want to please Him. And so when we are confronted with the option to disobey the Lord, to lapse into darkness or to embrace darkness, we say, well, I don't want to displease the Lord. I have bought into the idea that that is important, that that's acceptable. Pleasing the Lord is the best way to live life. I've bought into that, and it's a value, a core value in my life. You and I need to buy into what God says We need to accept that God's ways are the best way. We need to do what God says because pleasing Him more than pleasing myself is a core value in my heart, in my life. So I ask you this morning, have you done that? Have you bought into what God says? Or is it something that just you think is a really good idea? Is pleasing God a core value of your life? Is it one of the deciding factors? Or are His commands a burden to you? My answer to those questions that I just asked, it reveals the difference between being a religious person or being someone who Jesus has transformed into light. Because there is a difference. My answer to those questions reveals the difference between trying to be righteous enough to get to heaven and actually being righteous before God. It's the difference between being in Christ or being in darkness. I'm not trying to get to heaven. I want to please Jesus because there's nothing I can do to get to heaven. (laughs) Any attempt to try to live some code of conduct that will make my life better and somehow make it more acceptable to God, that that's my motivation will break down at some point. But when your answer is, I love Jesus and I don't want to break his heart, I want to please him, I want to bless him, he's important to me changes everything. Now, in addition to buying into pleasing God, we need to opt out of darkness, verse 11. And so, walk as children of light, buying into pleasing God, and then secondly, opting out, have no fellowship, he says, with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. The word here for fellowship, it means to be associated in a joint activity. Do not be associated in a joint activity with the unfruitful works of darkness. Darkness is going this way, you say, I'm not partnering with that. If this is darkness, well, I'm not going to be in a joint association with that or those who are doing that because those works are unfruitful. Light produces fruitful things. The deeds produced by living in darkness We've studied them, all the things we need to put off. The deeds produced by living in darkness, lying, wrath, theft, laziness, harmful speech, bitterness, unforgiveness, unkindness, impurity, sexual sin, covetousness, they produce nothing of value. Nothing. Oh, it might feel good to get angry and let somebody have it. It might feel good to blow off some steam. You're stressed out and whatever, and you're ah, I'm just going to, oh, I feel better now. Okay, what have you accomplished? You've probably not built anything, and it's very likely you've probably destroyed something. It might feel good to watch pornography or to hold a grudge or to get away with a lie, but what has it actually accomplished? What has it really produced? Nothing good. 
is certainly nothing eternal. We must make the decision that we actually believe that and then decide to stop participating in those things. Because if we don't make the decision that we actually believe that, that this is unfruitful, we're, we're going to keep trying. I'll keep up this lie. I'll keep seeking to please myself in one of these ways that are here. I won't go out and get any job because I want one that values my skills or pays me what I think I'm appropriate for. Okay. If that's your the value that you have and you think it's okay to partner with that idea, well, you're going to participate in darkness, laziness, not taking care of your family like you should. We need to make the decision that we actually believe that the works of darkness are unfruitful and then decide to stop participating in them. And instead, he says, but rather reprove them. In other words, when we see other people doing these things, we need to react differently. We can't just be like, oh, okay, that's cool. We need to react differently. It says we need to reprove them. Now, most people, when they see the word reprove, they want to insert the word rebuke. So when we see someone participating in the unfruitful works of darkness, we need to say, you're bad, or you stink, or you're dumb. That is not what the word reprove means. The word reprove, like a lot of Christians think they have the gift of rebuke. There is no gift of rebuke, by the way. <laughs> Not going to find any lists of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. That's a gift of the flesh. But we are called to reprove. The word is an interesting word because it, it's the idea of, uh, has the idea of persuasion. It means to convince someone of a crime or a fault. It means to test something and expose it with a view to correction. It means that you, you place it under the microscope so that you can examine something and show that it's flawed, to show that it's wrong, and therefore convince the other person who's looking at the, the up-close data with you and go, oh, okay, this is wrong. I need to change. I love what Vincent said. He said, the test exposes and demonstrates the error and then refutes it, thus convincing, convicting, and rebuking the subject of it. We like to just run to the end and be like, you stink, you're wrong. But the idea here is, is that the rebuke is supposed to come as the other person realizes, whoa, I'm wrong. This is not good. This needs to change. This is where Paul would often talk about reasoning in the synagogues. He would reason with them. He'd go in there and he'd reason with them. He didn't go in there and be like, oh, y'all are bad. He would share the scripture and he'd reason with them. Expose, shine the light. We'll read about that in a second. So that they would think to themselves, much like when Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost came, what do we need to do to fix this? Now, this is fascinating to me because what Paul is saying here is that my only connection to the activities and the attitudes Paul tells us we need to put off, my only connection to those things is that I'm exposing their wrongness or demonstrating why they're wrong. My only connection to these activities and attitudes is that I'm refuting any type of reasoning that would justify such behavior, and as a result, convincing the person who's involved in them that it's not okay to behave or think that way. Someone told me this morning that they heard an argument 
from a Christian regarding abortion, well, God killed his son, why can't I kill mine? Now we whistle and we say, ooh, and we get offended by this. How do you reprove such a wrong idea? Like we can all just go, that's stupid. Or that's foolish. Like why would you even say something like that? But where reproof comes in is where reproof says, okay, well, let me explain to you why that is wrong. Let me shine a light on the statement. So when we look at an abortion, only one person has the right to cause the death. But Jesus, in his sacrifice on the cross, he said, lo, I come to do thy will, O God. In the, book of the volume of the book, it's written of me, burn offering and sacrifice you have not desired. It's not enough. A body thou hast prepared for me. What Jesus has said is, I'll do it. I'll do it. That's radically different than the procedure of abortion, where the infant in the womb gets no choice. That's how you reprove. You don't just look at them in disgust and go, how could you call yourself a Christian and say something like that? You look at them and you go, okay, well, let's examine. Let's put that idea to the test. And then as you shine the truth in there, you expose the flaws, the fallacies, the lies of a statement like that. And as a result, the person, when they hear that, they become convinced and convicted and rebuked for even thinking of saying something like that. And it should drive them back to the truth. That's what it means to reprove. Anyone can throw something up on a social media account and go, these people are stupid. That is not reproof. Now, when it comes to these things, that's the only kind of conversation we should be having about the topic of abortion in the church. There should never be a discussion inside the church about sexual sin or wrath or lying or, or any of these other things that we've talked about here where we have a group in the church that's debating and going, this is okay. I think it's okay. I think what, what God said here is not really what we need to do. The only time that we should ever be having that conversation is when we hear it, we reprove it. And then bring them back into the light, and then it's done. We should never be sitting down going, okay, I know God says this, but what do you think? Because if a Christian has any other connection to these activities or attitudes, it is a shameful thing. Verse 12, for it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done of them, it says in secret in the King James, but it just means in darkness. It's a shame for us to even talk about those things that are done of them. Them is the unbelievers, the sons of disobedience who will experience God's wrath from verse 6. It is a shameful thing even to talk about those things that are done in the darkness by unbelievers. It's unacceptable behavior. These things should never be up for debate. For this we know, no whoremonger, no unclean person, nor covetous person who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. So let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of those things comes the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. We should never be having an open discussion about, should we do it this way or not? This you know. We should know these things. That's darkness. We don't participate in that. This is light. This is where we go. Now, Paul isn't saying the lost always hide their sin. The Greek world lived these behaviors out in the open, probably even more than people do today. But what he's explaining is that, is that an unbeliever's deeds and attitudes lie in the realm of darkness. 
a realm that we don't belong to anymore, and therefore a realm we're supposed to opt out of. God hates the dark deeds that we used to do before we became light. And so we should be so far away from those things that the only time we end up in a conversation about them is because we're calling unbelievers to repentance. That's the only time we should end up in a conversation like that is because we're being light in the darkness. Only then is it acceptable to discuss these issues. Verse 13, but all things that are reproved are made manifest by the light. For whatsoever does make manifest is light. While none of these behaviors that Paul said we need to put off should be up for discussion in the church or should be a part of any of our lives if we're Christians, there is good that comes, though, when we shine our light into a life that's walking in darkness. All things that are reproved, when we expose it, they're made manifest. It means they're to cause something that wasn't visible to become visible, to cause something that was confusing to become clear and known. When we expose and when we shine our light, things become visible, things become clear and known. For whatsoever does make manifest, whatsoever reveals is light. It's no longer shrouded in darkness. It becomes what it really is. There have been a couple times me and Bev have had, you know, have those moments when you're in bed sleeping and, you know, all of a sudden you see through the door, there's something, a shape or something there. And like be a couple times, I go, what is that? Because your brain's telling you it's silly to worry about this, but your eyes are telling you you should be worried about this. And so eventually you get up and you find out, oh, it's, we left a streamer up from the birthday party and the shape was casting a shadow in the door and it looked like there was like a gargoyle in the house. But you turn on the light and you're like, oh, it's just an orange streamer. It's what it really is. Last night we had an interesting incident Bev came to me about a little bit before 11 p.m. and she said, she said, I, I think there's, the toilet's leaking. I'm about ready to go to bed and I'm thinking to myself, no, not now. Like, like no. Why? And I'm huffing and I'm puffing and I'm asking all the questions. I'm irritated. And you get down and you're like, all right, well, it's too late. We'll just find a way to turn off the water. And I get down and you try to turn the thing and I'm looking at this and I go, I don't think this has been moved in 75 years. It, like, like, I'm going to snap this thing off and water's going to come rushing out. I'm going to drown my children and just, I'm just stressed out to the max. Absolutely stressed out. And so, you know, you get down there, you try to make this, finagle this thing to get it up. No, it's not working. And so I can't hear anything. She's hearing things. And I'm like, okay, so I, you know, take the paint and the mirror off the wall and put my ear to the wall. And I, it sounds like there's a river. There's a river in the wall. I'm like, all right, we got a leak, and, and how long has it been going on? I said, Sam, I think I remember hearing it yesterday. I'm like, oh, no, man, I'm, you know, just, I'm just seeing our water dial just go like this. And the, guy, the guy's going to come up and be like, <laughs> look at this. You know, if you're the water guy, I'm sure you're not doing that. But I'm just stressed out. I'm like, what is going on? And, you know, and then it hit me. Earlier in the day, we had... Um, Someone was working on our AC, and they brought the unit out, and I had to get the hose and bring it around from the side of the house and so they can clean it out. And so he's cleaning it out, you know, whatever. Well, it was raining yesterday, and so I'm thinking as I'm out there watching him work on stuff, I'm thinking to myself, I'm a mess. I need to go in, dry off, and I forgot to turn the water off on the hose. So the hose had been not running per se, but the water was gushing and stopped. You know, it was still you flowing inside and, and slightly leaking out where you connect it. 
And it hit me, and I'm immediately relief. I'm like, oh, it's wonderful. He said, why are you telling a story about this, Will? Because when I went outside in my pajamas at 11.30 at night to go turn off the thing, because I just want to go to bed at this point. I'm not going to go get dressed. I can't see a thing. Our neighborhood is not super well lit. Please don't rob us. <laughs> it's not super well lit. So you walk in the front yard, you first get out there, and I mean, it's just, it's very dark. And I'm stumbling over things in my flip-flops and whatever because I can't see them. They looks like ground, but actually it's like the beginnings of the area where mulch is or whatever, where the little concrete slab is just outside the laundry room. And, and so I'm stumbling whatever because I can't see. The shapes don't reveal what they really are. I would never have that problem in the daytime because the light's on and you see things for what they really are. When we are exposing, when we're reproving these things, that's what happens. When you look at shapes in the darkness, they easily, can easily appear to be something other than what they are. Whoever mentioned that phrase, wherever this person shared that with me and they got it from, well, if God can kill his son, I, can, I should be able to kill mine. They just probably heard someone else say that and it made sense to them. But because it's in darkness, it's not going to look like what it really is. So you got to turn the light. When you turn the light on, you see everything for what it really is. And that's what we're supposed to be in the world. Not partners with darkness, but light in the darkness. And that's what Jesus said in our Matthew 5.14. He said, guys, here's, here's how my kingdom works. Blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. These are the principles of how I operate and how you should operate. Because you're the light of the world. You're different. You're just shining like a city on a hill. You can't hide a city on a hill. Your life should not be hidden. It shouldn't be enshrouded in darkness. So let your light shine in such a way. Your light. What are you shining? Let it shine in such a way that men see your good deeds and they glorify God. I remember when I was a younger believer, I used to always think, well, that man, oh, they'll see me living for God, and they'll be like, wow, you're doing really good. You know? No, what that means is, is that they're going to turn to the Lord because you're shining light through how you live. Now, Paul mentions this is why there was this popular saying in the church, wherefore, he says, awake thou that sleep and, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give you light. Wherefore, he says, gives us the impression that God said this. You'll never find this anywhere in the Bible. It's not a scripture he's quoting. In fact, he says should be translated, it says, or a person says. Wherefore, people say, what do they say? Paul here is quoting some well-known saying among Christians, or maybe even lyrics from a worship song that one of the early Christians wrote that became popular. Christians said or sang these words because to each other and in song or in, in speech because it explained their role of being the light of the world. That we say to people, awake you that sleep and arise from the dead and Christ will give you light. Wake up. You're asleep, which sleep, of course, in the New Testament is a euphemism for being dead. You're lost. Wake up. Rise from up out of the dead. Arise from the dead. Arise from the dead. Literally, is arise from out of the dead. The word dead here is plural, which means a group of somethings. The dead is the lost. Wake up. 
You who are dead and rise up out of the dead. Leave the group that God's pouring out his wrath upon. And you know what? Christ will make you light too. Christ will make you light too. Now, this is not a creepy join us, but it's the idea of, the idea of look, at, look at my life. I can't tell you how many times I have been with an individual who is resisting the Lord, resisting the Lord, resisting the Lord, and I just look at him and I go, how is that working out for you? I'm not saying my life's perfect, but look at us. Like, life is good. Even life is bad, it's good. Can you say that for you? Wake up. Christ can illuminate you just like he's illuminated me. Christ can make you light just like he made me light. Leave the dead. Be born again. We are called to tell the lost that they're in danger, that wrath is coming upon all who engage in these behaviors, that they need to wake up and leave the group that God's wrath is coming upon, and that if they turn to Christ and are born again, he'll make them light too. Here's Paul's point. You and I can't do that if we're living in darkness or if we're partnering with the lost in their deeds of darkness. We can't do that. So our conduct needs to accurately reflect who we are, which is where Paul closes out with verses 15 and 16. See then, here's his point. Therefore, see then that you walk circumspectly not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. See then is a really simple way of saying you need to pay close attention to something. You need to be watching out for something. And what are we doing? We need to pay close attention, watch out for how we walk, how we order our behavior, how we conduct ourselves. And we need to make sure that our conduct is circumspect. That's a word we don't use today very much. It's an old English word that means you do something carefully. You do it so carefully that you make sure you're accurate in how you're doing it, that you're doing it in strict accordance with a standard. And of course, our standard is God's standard. To walk circumspectly or to pay close attention to our conduct that it is accurate, that it is in accordance with God's standard is what all of us need to embrace. We must beware to never grow lazy when it concerns our conduct. Because autopilot for a Christian equals backsliding. Hebrews 2.1 makes it very clear. Let us take the more earnest heed. Why? Lest at any time we should begin to slip, begin to slip, which means begin to drift away. My natural position, if I just stand still as a Christian, is to go backwards. So I need to pay careful attention to how I'm living. I can't look at a situation. Like, we're going to talk about some stuff in the next few weeks. We're going to talk about marriage. The idea that husbands are supposed to love their wives as Christ loved the church is an idea that should never be up for discussion in the church. We know this. Like, the Bible's clear on this. But if that's the case, then why is it when the Lord's saying, hey, Will, you're supposed to die to yourself and love your wife in this way, and we kind of just go, yeah, but I'm not sure Jesus meant this. And we just kind of meander. The idea, wives, submit to your husbands. 
Like that shouldn't be a hot button issue in the church. God says it. That should be it. We know this. This is not a new idea. It's not like all of a sudden someone came up and said, hey guys, I think wives need to submit to their husbands. I was reading an article about the Attorney General of Maine. There was a Supreme Court case recently that overturned Maine's decision that taxpayer vouchers for school can't be used for private institutions or religious institutions. Only can be used for public school. And overturned that and changed it. And I don't care what your opinion is on that. That's not my point. The response of the AG to this was she said this. She goes, public funds should be used to expand the horizons of our students, which means it should expose them to all sorts of ideas. She followed that up with the statement, if taxpayer funds are going to these religious institutions, these religious schools, then they embrace barbaric ideas like husbands are to be the head of their homes. You tell me what's more barbaric. The idea that husbands should be the head of their home, as Jesus says, or inviting a man who dresses not just like a woman, but a very odd-looking woman to influence the minds of young children. I know which one looks more like barbarism to me. When we talk about the concept, wives submit to your husbands, husband love your wives, this is God's plan for the family, this is God's plan for your work environment as an employee or an employer, we're going to talk about all those things. Paul is saying, you could react to those teachings in a very foolish way. Where either you just kind of hear it and go, yep, that's what we believe, yeah, that's the church. And you just kind of go out and you go out to lunch after Sunday and nothing changes. And he's saying, that is a foolish response. I don't want you to be fools. I want you to be wise. A wise person hears or reads God's word and exercises care to apply that word to their lives. A foolish person might agree with it. They might even experience an emotional tugging on them when they hear about what they're supposed to do. But the care is missing. The circumspect attitude is missing. Well, there's not this sense of, this needs to change in my life. I need to be very careful about how I conduct myself in my marriage as a child, as a parent, as a worker, as a boss. I need to conduct myself in a way that matches with what God tells me. And I need to make sure that happens. That's what a wise person does. Because when the care is missing, there's a spiritual laziness that causes us to slide in the opposite direction. Let's not do that, guys. There have been a lot of serious topics that we've discussed over the last few weeks. And I ask you, what has your response to those things been? Have you taken the time to carefully examine your conduct and to see if it's accurate with what the Bible says? Have you taken the time to apply God's truth to your life? Or have you been foolish? Have you been wasting the precious time God's given you in this life? Or are you buying up the opportunities that God's given you? That's the last thing Paul says, redeeming the time because the days are evil. We know about redemption, how Jesus purchased us from our sin, purchased us from judgment, right? But the word here is in the middle voice, which means it's something we purchased for ourselves. 
buy up for yourself, not time, but the time. The definite article used here means that this is not referring to time in general, but to a specific opportunity that God gives us. Paul isn't saying wise people make the most of every moment. That's what you'll hear from a Grammy speech or on a Kodak. Or did Kodak still do stuff? I don't know. Anyway, on a commercial. Make the most of every moment. That's not what Paul's saying. What Paul's saying is wise people buy up opportunities to please God. Because the days are evil, man. The days, the time period that Paul was living in, he says it's immoral and it's wicked. We can't afford to waste opportunities to please God. We can't afford to waste opportunities to be light. And you know what? The time from Paul hasn't changed. We are not living in the kingdom yet. And so we can't afford to be lazy or get lazy when it comes to our conduct. We need to buy up like people desperate to find toilet paper in a pandemic. We need to buy up the opportunities we get to please the Lord. Amen? So does that describe your Christianity? Because if it doesn't, you need to repent. No man knows the day or the hour of Christ's return, but if the Ephesians needed to redeem the time 2,000 years ago, then we surely need to do so now because the kingdom is 2,000 years closer. If you're in Christ this morning, you are light. You need to order your behavior as a child of God. You need to opt out of partnering with darkness and opt in to what pleases God. So as the worship team comes up, I can't think of a a better time to kind of reinforce that commitment or renew that commitment or maybe pick a specific area that God's dealing with you with right now to say, Lord, I'm opting in. I'm opting out of darkness and I'm opting in to being your child, to living like who I am. I can't think of a better time than when we celebrate the Lord's Supper because this is a time that we remember how much he loved us. And the Bible says we love him because he first loved us. And because we love him, his commandments aren't a burden. And so I urge you, please don't be foolish this morning. God loves you. His ways are the best way. And he doesn't want you to spend opportunities you have to please him by investing your time into the deeds of darkness that produce nothing of value. Will you be wise with God's word this morning? Will you buy up the opportunity he's giving you right now to respond to his word with care? Let's pray. We thank you so much for all you've done for us. And Lord, we're gonna have a time now to remember and reflect on the great love that caused you to, Lord, to offer yourself as a great sacrifice for us. Lord, we want to remember you, and in doing so, to recommit ourselves, or maybe even just for the first time, commit ourselves to saying, Lord, you are good. Your way is best, and I just want to please you. Lord, as many of my brothers and sisters may be making that kind of decision this morning, to opt out of darkness in an area of their life, or many areas, and to opt into pleasing you. God, would you fill us all with your spirit as we make those choices, that we might be different, that we might be those cities set on a hill and impact the people around us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.